This is the sixth in a series of talks by Joel on devotional practices titled Devotion 6, Silent Prayer, recorded October 21st, 2005, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, we said at the very beginning that historically, for most seekers, the Bhakti path turns out to be simpler and easier than the Janana path. And the reason is because when we unleash this river of love and longing for happiness that naturally resides in our heart, even if it may be by the time we get to a spiritual path buried fairly deeply there, but once we can awaken that and unleash it, this provides a powerful motivation for everything else that we have to do on the path. So this business of falling in love with the beloved, this constitutes the great advantage of the bhakti approach. And if you on this retreat have tasted this river of love flowing, if you've gotten in up to your ankles, if you waded in up to your waist, if you've even had a little experience of letting go and see what it's like to have the river carry you, then I encourage you to continue after the retreat and to continue from wherever you are when the uh, retreat ends. And chances are you will be continuing with some of the practices we've introduced up until this point on the retreat. And Normally, this would probably be a good place to end the retreat. But as is my custom, we're going to leap ahead. And we're going to take a peek at the end of the path. And there are people who would say that you shouldn't do that for a variety of reasons. One is that I'm giving away sort of uh, trade secrets here. And... In the old days, uh, that was quite common, that teachers would withhold uh, certain practices and certain principles because they don't want their students' donkey minds going ahead, you know, worrying about that, thinking about it when they've got stuff to do right there in front of them. But in this day and age, uh, especially after the printing press and now with the Internet, it's all out there anyway. You know, I think this is the age of the end of secrets. I think increasingly it's going to be impossible for anybody to keep any secrets. And then there's another reason, and that is I can rely on your ignorance and your delusion <laughs> that you will forget. So when it comes around again, when it's appropriate, you won't have remembered what I said anyway. And then I'm also basing this on my own inclinations, and I must say that I'm someone who likes to have an overview and this is uh, the nature of my donkey mind, even if it's something I don't really quite understand or, you know, whatever, at least the donkey mind likes to know that somebody knows where we're going here, that there's an engineer, you know, in the cab of the train, so that it's just not running wild, and that's just the nature of the donkey mind. So in a certain sense, to give a picture of the whole path is to give the donkey mind a bone, and the donkey mind can go off and chew contentedly on the bone, and then you don't have to worry about it. So those are my reasons, but, you know, there's a good argument for not doing it. So I would honor anybody who wants to try to maintain that, even if it is the age of the Internet. So now, anyway, we are going to jump ahead and take a peek at the end of the path. And now we are coming once again to the highest teachings, which some people have been waiting for, salivating over. Definitely. And now I have to warn you once again, you ain't going to like them. You ain't going to like him at all. Even worse than the, the Jananis don't like the highest teachings. They, it just puzzles the uh, Jananis, but it really upsets the Bhaktis. So with that caveat, we will plunge in. And let's go back to uh, something I quoted you at the very beginning, uh, something that Krishna told Arjuna. And he said, Those who meditate on my form with pure love I very soon deliver from the ocean of death. And you remember he was comparing that to those who try to meditate on the formless, the ultimate reality. And 
if we remember what he said and we look at it carefully, we realize what's happened is the bhakti has fallen in love with a form of the divine that represents the ultimate reality, but not the ultimate reality. Now, this is not a mistake. It's not an error that this happened. It's supposed to happen this way. This is how the bhakti path works. You could say it somewhat crudely. It's like it's not an error when parents put on training wheels to the bicycle so their kids can get a, a little sense of how to ride. And then once the kids have a, a pretty good idea of how to ride, then they take the training wheels off. So it wasn't an error to put on training wheels, but it is a temporary expedient. It's not the ultimate. And Rumi has a very uh, succinct way of describing this. Other images run before thy image like the minds of prisoners at the cry, freedom. So it's an image here of bringing in this overpowering image that outshines all the forms that we're normally attracted to. So whatever it is you want in terms of worldly goods that you think will make you happy, fame, fortune, lovers, spouses, family, whatever it is, the image of the divine arrives and they all flee like prisoners of the cry of freedom. So it dispels our grasping after all these other images. All that energy then goes into being directed at this divine image. But then Rumi goes on to declare, I am he who carves idols from his images. In other words, the idols are all the ways we envision the beloved. And in Islam, he's probably talking about the 99 names, uh, traditional 99 names of God. So you can worship God under any of these names, the magnificent, the merciful, the so forth and so on. And you'd find this in other traditions as well. I mean, in Christianity, you worship the divine under the Trinity. So the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In India, I mean, my gosh, the divine appears in all these manifestations, you know, Krishna and the divine mother and Shiva and, you know, just uh, thousands of varieties. So these are all the idols that are carved. We're worshiping idols. It's okay. It's okay now. It's a temporary expedient. It's okay. We're supposed to. But then he says, when the time of union comes, then I smash the idols. So he's saying that this is done on purpose. You set up these idols for a purpose to attract all this attention, all this love, all this longing into one place, and then you smash that idol. Is everybody following the imagery here? So at a certain point, here's what you won't like, the bhakti has to surrender what he or she has come to love the most, and that is the beloved. After all this, you have to give up the beloved. Here's what uh, Ramakrishna says about this. So long as there is a little ego left, the consciousness that I am a devotee, God is comprehended as personal, and his form is realized. This consciousness of a separate ego is a barrier that keeps one at a distance from the highest realization. So as long as there's any sense that I am a devotee of the divine, there's a sense of separation. One of the ways to look at this is to say that what the bhakti path does is it renders all the multiplicity of distinctions irrelevant. So we're left with only one, me and God. And particularly if you have seen your beloved manifesting in all these forms around you, 
in the sky and the stones and the rocks and so forth, then you know that the beloved is everywhere. The distinctions between the, the rock and the tree, they're useful, but they're not real. It's all the beloved. Wherever my glance falls, there is Krishna, as Anandamaya said. But there is still you separate from the divine. You are the devotee worshiping the divine. So, this personal God, as Ramakrishna talks about it, this idol, as Rumi says, this is the last barrier that blocks the entrance into the radiant heart. This is the last thing left in the spiritual heart. It's outshined and burned up everything else. Remember what Rumi said in the very beginning and where we took the title of this retreat. That love is that flame when it blazes up, burns away everything but the beloved. So here we are with everything burned away but the beloved. Now, this is so painful that there have been bhaktis who refuse to take this step. And this is uh, what a uh, famous Hindu bhakti, Tukaram, writes about this. He who worships God must stand distinct from him. So only shall he know the joyful love of God. For if he says that God and he are one, that joy, that love shall vanish instantly away. Pray no more for utter oneness with God. He's at least being honest about it. You know, he doesn't want to lose that sweetness and that joy and that bliss of being the devotee and forever worshiping the beloved. And you know, a lot of bhaktis do not make it to the end of the path from our point of view because that they want to stay there. And you know, that's fine. I have no criticism. If you get to that point, you're going to have a, a wonderful life. But... It is a barrier, as Ramakrishna said, to the highest realization. And there's something else I should say, and that is this bliss, it's true, that he's talking about will vanish away. Will vanish away. But then I have to counter that or add to that something else. There is something, quote, higher. Because what he is talking about, what he is experiencing, what he is enjoying is manifest bliss and intense manifest bliss. But there is available beyond that in the radiant heart an unmanifest bliss, which is really, truly impossible to describe. But I can give you one analogy for it, which some of you have heard before, but it's worth repeating. And that's something that happened to me. When I was living at Lone Pine out on the desert in California, uh, one fourth of July, some of the people who hung out around Yogi's place and were friends with Andre and stuff decided on a great idea. And that is that we would get some fireworks and we'd go out to the desert beyond the city, the little town of Lone Pine. It wasn't a city, a small town, but where there, you know, lights from the town really go out into the desert where we couldn't see any other lights and set off the fireworks. Because what a spectacular display this would be. There would be no other light interfering. So that sounded great. So they organized this. And then around dusk, we all set out in a little caravan. And we went out, you know, 30 miles into the desert. And as the sun was going down, they started setting up the fireworks. And we brought out some picnic stuff we would brought along and whatnot. And then when the sun had finally gone down and all the rays were gone, they started setting off these fireworks. Well, you know, if you've ever been on the desert on a clear night, it's awesome. The silence, the majesty, the immensity, the depths, the infinite depths. It's just overpowering. And these little fireworks going blip, 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 they're lost. Almost in the immensity of this. Do you know what I mean? They were great fireworks. I mean, they, you know, they bought expensive fireworks, but in relation to the sky, it was nothing. And we didn't end up watching the fireworks. We ended up lying back and watching the heavens. Lost in the heavens. So this is the relation of manifest bliss to unmanifest bliss. 
Not that there's anything wrong with manifest bliss. And he said, this will vanish away. It will vanish away, but it won't vanish away forever. You'll have other manifest bliss in your life. But all manifest bliss is ultimately impermanent anyway. It comes and it goes. The sky doesn't come and go. It's there. You may not see it sometimes, but it's there right now. Just that, you know, the, the sun and all that has obscured it. That infinite immensity is there. And in the background of all this is unmanifest bliss. And that is what is available to discover in the radiant heart. You won't discover it in the spiritual heart. So, this is why Meister Eckhart says, In the breaking through, when I came to be free of all the will of myself, and of God's will, and of all his works, and of God himself, then I am above all created things, and I am neither God nor creature, but I am what I was and what I shall remain, now and eternally. God, as he is God, and as he performs all his divine works, cannot suffice me. For in this breaking through, I receive that God and I are one. So we've come full circle back to the beginning. We said, you know, that Jananis are always complaining about bhaktis because they don't realize God and they are one and they're off worshiping some God and this and that. Jananis have the same problem because they're striving for enlightenment as though that were something else too. But we all come back to this same situation, the same truth that, in a certain sense, uh, you could say has to be faced. So, what constituted the big advantage of the bhakti path all the way up to this point suddenly turns around and becomes its big disadvantage. At this point, it is easier for a janana to give up what they have to give up, and that is the object of their quest, which is the idea that someday I'm going to attain enlightenment. Someday you are not going to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment is not out there waiting to be attained. It's the exact same problem, just put in in fancier philosophical terms. This is why in the Zen tradition, they say, as Suzuki Roshi, I believe it was, who said, if you're sitting there on your pillow meditating in order to attain enlightenment, you're never going to attain it. So the reason we meditate is to dispel that karmic spinning mind. But if you're striving for enlightenment, you're spinning karma and you're wasting your time on your pillow. So we come to the same place. But, you know, it's easier for Janana to give that up. They don't like to give that up and it's difficult mentally, but they haven't fallen in love with enlightenment in the same way, you know. So it's harder at this point for bhakti. Suddenly it becomes harder. Everything else up to here has been easier and now suddenly it's harder. But it's absolutely necessary if you're going to get to the end of the path. And here's what Ibn Arabi says about this. If the lover is not a Gnostic, he creates in himself a form by which he becomes enraptured and of which he is enamored. Hence, he only worships and yearns for that which is under his own sway. Nothing can remove him from this station but knowledge. And he means gnosis. So, in a certain sense, what he's saying is, if you are not a Gnostic, if you don't know what's going on, if you're just a lover of God, you have set up something out of your own imagination. And it's under your sway. And then he doesn't mean this is like an ego fantasy where you think up things and manipulate them. I mean, that's the whole point. We talked about this. The, the true sign of guidance is a kind of autonomy that you're not manipulating. But at a more fundamental level, it's true. And a crude uh, image for this is looking in a mirror. So if you look away from a mirror, you don't see any, any image. You look into the mirror and then you see somebody looking at you. And you look away and you look back and they look back at you too. 
And if you don't realize the connection and you don't realize that it's a reflection of you, you could fall under delusion and think there is someone in the mirror you're having a relationship with. And finally, you could gaze into the mirror. Maybe it's a very attractive person. Of course, we all think it's a very attractive person. Maybe you start making hand signs. Oh, the mirror responds. The more you engage the image in the mirror, the more it engages you. It's wonderful. You're developing this wonderful relationship. You get so so in tune that it's like a perfect dance back and forth, you in the mirror. It's just wonderful. But you are, in a certain sense, manipulating it. You don't know. You see, that's what I mean. It's not happening on a level that you're aware of. So that's what he's talking about. And he says at the end, nothing can remove him from this station but gnosis. So in other words, now, if the bhakti wants to get to the end of the path, the bhakti has to cease being a devotee and become a Gnostic. Just like the janana. The janana has to stop striving for enlightenment and wake up. Not in time. There's no time to wake up. Not tomorrow. Not at the end of your practice. So the Janana is thrown into a kind of a Cohen situation and the Bhakti is thrown into a dark night of the soul usually. Now, there are several ways this can happen. Uh, first way is it's so difficult for Bhaktis to actually do anything about this. They're so reluctant to let go that often the divine withdraws from them, helps them out, see, suddenly disappears. And here's the key, though. If you've burned all your bridges behind you, then you're stuck out there. If you haven't, then, oh, well, this didn't work out. I'll go back to law school and you'll, you know, you'll leave. So that is really the work of the bhakti path in the sense of giving up everything for the beloved, surrendering everything. So if you get to that point and there's nothing left and then the beloved leaves you, then there'll be nothing to do. There'll be nothing arising that attracts attention. And if you read John of the Cross, for instance, about it, no matter how dark it seems to the seeker, it's actually a necessary process, as he puts it, the soul is undergoing a cure. The cure is, not only is it being stripped of all worldly images and things, it's being stripped of the beloved. It's being stripped of everything, of everything. So there's nothing between you and God. But that is something you can't make happen, like I say. That's something that comes from the other side. But in the meantime, if you begin to suspect that there's something beyond the image of the beloved, which bhaktis do, can do, and have done, then you can start... Uh, doing some practices which border on being non-practices, which we are going to try a couple of here. And it's at this point that the bhakti and janana paths converge. These aren't janana practices. They're not bhakti practices. They're simply end-of-the-path practices, if you wanted to say that. So that's what we are going to uh, try the rest of the day today, just to get a taste of, Okay. So, how do we then do this? What do we do at this point? And here's what Dr. Wolf says. Now, this is after 24 or 29 years of seeking, depending on where you count the beginning of this path, as a Janani, with a lot of methodical you know, investigation and pondering of teachings and all that stuff. And he says, It suddenly dawned on me that a common error in meditation and one which I had been making right along, lay in seeking a subtle object of experience. Now an object of experience, no matter how subtle, remains a phenomenal time-space existence, 
and therefore is other than supersensible substantiality, which is simply his way of saying the ultimate reality, non-dual reality. So any phenomena, any experience is not that, cannot be that. Thus, the consciousness to be sought is a state of pure subjectivity without an object. I saw that genuine recognition is simply a realization of nothing, but a nothing that is absolutely substantial and identical with the self, with the Hindu self, with the capital S, the true self. Now, for bhaktis, of course, the object that you end up with, the very subtle object of experience, is the beloved, is God, or the form of God. But as Ibn Arabi writes about God, he is not accompanied by thingness, nor do we ascribe it to him. The negation of thingness from him is one of his essential attributes. So he's saying just what Dr. Wolf is saying. God is not a thing. God is a no thing. If you want to find Allah, you have to go where no thing is, which is consciousness without an object. And again, here's Ananda Mahima, who has very strong bhakti currents in her teachings and her path and her approach. But she says... Where nothing is, there is everything. All efforts are for the sake of this realization. Here's what the uh, Kabbalist scholar Gershom Sholem says. Only when the soul has stripped itself of all limitation and in mystical language has descended into the depths of nothing does it encounter the divine. Yeah. Should I be totally, completely confused? Yes, yes, that's good. <laughs> Sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment and be bewildered and distraught in God. I don't know what you're talking about. Did you hear me quote you, Rumi, about sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment? I remember. And don't be bewildered like a buffoon, but be bewildered and distraught in God? I feel quite buffoonish. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. A buffoon tries to cover their bewilderment. A truly bewildered person, a distraught person, is just bewildered and distraught. Uh, you feel bewildered and distraught? Good. Good, good. So, how then, the question is, how do we locate this nothingness that in bhakti terminology is the gateway to the radiant heart? We're still in the spiritual heart. You see, we're still stuck in the spiritual heart. And what got us into the spiritual heart was following the form of the divine. But now the form is blocking the way. So how do we do this? How do we get beyond this? Ramana explains, if the mind is turned in towards the source of illumination, objective knowledge ceases and the self alone shines as the heart. So he's even using the same terms as Dr. Wolf, the self, this is the true self. And then the heart here is the radiant heart. It shines as the radiant heart. So this is very important. If the mind is turned in towards the source of illumination, not towards objects, but towards the subject to consciousness, not the object. The subject to consciousness can never be an object before consciousness. That's why this has to be no thing. Any object before consciousness, then the subject is the one perceiving it. So whatever is an object before consciousness cannot be the subject to consciousness. Objective knowledge ceases, and the self alone shines as the heart. Objective knowledge is not just intellectual knowledge. He's talking about objects cease. It is consciousness without an object. Yes? Well, is um, the uh, feeling of ecstatic love, is that an object in consciousness? Yes, isn't it? 
You tell me. Is it a feeling? I can see that someone would be feeling it so much that they would be unaware of themselves, so it wouldn't be an object in the sense that I have an object. They would be immersed in it, but is that then not still an object? Yes, because that feeling will pass, and then the awareness of self will come back. So you can have a sense of the absorption of self in some object. This is the secret of why we love uh, sporting events, entertainment, all this stuff in which we can lose ourselves. See, we throw ourselves into dancing, so we lose our sense of self, we're dancing around. But it's because attention has been absorbed into an object, absorbed so thoroughly that the sense of self is almost non-existent. But the trouble is when the dance stops and when the musicians pack up their stuff and go home, you're stuck with your sorry old self again. <laughs> See what I mean? So you're right. And it's very valuable to have these experiences because what it does do is convince us that maybe it's not so horrible living without the sense of self. I mean, it convinces us in our own experience. Gee, this is kind of joyful. It's not so bad. But that experience is not what we're talking about. There's still an object in consciousness, and that is... Just that, the feeling, the feeling of love. No matter how sublime, no matter how subtle, as Dr. Wolf said, still an object in consciousness. Yeah. I'm wondering how I personally could ever let myself completely fall in love with the beloved, knowing that it is a form. I mean, that's, that's what I've been struggling with all along in the retreat anyway, you know, it kicks in that this is an aspect, but there's something beyond. So, you know, but to be a, to really let this path work, it seems, you know, they talk, you, you gave so many quotes about whole soul devotion. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that's even possible, you know, knowing that it, it's just an aspect. You're thinking one or the other. It's not one or the other. It's like if your lover sent you a bouquet of flowers. Ding, ding. You open the door and the messenger is there and says, here, this bouquet is for you. And you open up and the card says, this is from my lover, right? You don't say, oh, throw it away. It's not my lover. Oh, no, you rush in and you, you, know, you get a vase and you put it in and uh, this and that, you know. And I don't know, somebody comes and sticks it right in the direct sun and you say, no, 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 it's going to wilt. You protect it, you know what I mean? Just because it isn't your lover, it's a message from your lover, isn't it? It's a sign of your lover. It draws you, you know? But it's not your lover, ultimately. So this isn't an either-or situation. That's the whole point. Okay. So the, the key is at that moment of consciousness without an object, there is the realization that there is no separate subject to consciousness. Consciousness itself is the subject. You are that consciousness. Or in Bhakti terms, you are the radiant heart. You don't enter the radiant heart. It's just the realization that this is what you are. There is no separate subject. There's no distinction between you and this infinite consciousness. And it's that final collapse of that final distinction of the sense of I and then identity is obvious. I mean, it's just not a question. So, now we have to dive deeper into the spiritual heart, to the very bottom of the spiritual heart. We have to let go of all the stuff along the way until we arrive at that state of pure consciousness without an object. This is a state that uh, I call kenosis, which really is a Greek word that means emptiness. In other traditions, it's called stillness or silence, or Christians like to call it the divine darkness. The technical Hindu term is nirvakapa samadhi, Every tradition knows this, and every tradition has different terms for it. But these all terms refer to the same thing. Consciousness without an object. 
So in this process of diving into the bottom of the spiritual heart, we have to leave everything behind, including the form of the beloved. And that's really what's important to us here. And this is why Meister Eckhart says of God, of the true God, the one who sent you the bouquet of flowers, you should love him as he is a non-God, a non-spirit, a non-person, a non-image. But as he is a pure, unmixed, bright one, separated from all duality, and in that one we should eternally sink down out of something into nothing. See, same, same, all the traditions. Now, whether a Janani or a Bhakti, same, same. The two approaches are coming together. We're approaching the threshold, you know. You can come from opposite ends of the street and you come and then there's the pathway leading up to the front door. Now we're both on that pathway coming right up to the front door. Christian mystics call this last stage of mystical prayer, silent prayer or a prayer of silence. And uh, this is the Janana's equivalent of returning to the source. And on a previous retreat or so, we've done at the end of the retreat practices of returning to the source. So it's the very same practice where we watch thoughts disappear without a trace and we try to touch into that space between the thoughts and those sorts of things. So right now, it's not unfamiliar uh, to you. I'm going to continue using uh, bhakti terms and also we're now going to be using our mantra in a different way, as you're going to see in a few minutes. Here's what Dionysius writes about this. The higher we soar in contemplation, the more limited become our expressions of that which is purely intelligible. Even as now, when plunging into the darkness, which is above the intellect, we pass not merely into brevity of speech, but even into absolute silence. But in order to do this, we are going to be passing through realms of consciousness, if you like, realms of the psyche, perhaps it's better to say, so we don't confuse the terms, where archetypal visions and images and uh, experiences and phenomena are likely to appear. This is like going to sleep in a certain sense, except we're going to sleep lucidly. And just as when you go to sleep, you uh, enter into realms where visions can pop up, well, they can pop up here. And they can be startling, they can be uh, mesmerizing, they can be valuable. They can have messages for you and guidance for you. Uh, this is actually the realm that people engaged in shamanic vision quests attempt to access. If they have a, a specific problem, some guidance they want with something in their lives, then you go on a vision quest and you're crying for a vision and you are inviting an archetypal visitation and hoping to get some guidance from that for your problem. But we're going beyond even that. So this preparation is a commitment to go all the way, so to speak. And Ibn Arabi gives some advice about this and he suggests when you enter retreat you take on two covenants or vows special vows for this kind of retreat just this kind of retreat not all retreats just this kind of retreat of plunging into the bottom of the spiritual heart the, the prayer of silence as we're calling it and here's what he says first let your covenant at your entry into retreat be that there is nothing like unto God. And to each form that appears to you in retreat and says, I am God, say, far exalted be God above that. You are through God. Turn your attention from it and occupy yourself with zikr continually. So the idea is if you think you've encountered God in this journey, in some objective form, it can't be God. God is not a thing. So that's the first thing. Then, the second one is that you will not seek from him in retreat anything other than himself. 
And if everything in the universe should be spread before you, receive it graciously, but do not stop there. Persist in your quest, for he is testing you. If you stay with what is offered, he will escape you. But if you attain him, nothing will escape you. So, for instance, as a very practical thing, this is a warning about bliss. If you're going in this journey and you go inward and you're offered bliss, don't just hang out in bliss. Otherwise, yes, you'll get the bliss, but he will escape you. Accept it graciously. See, this is the same teaching, neither rejecting or pushing away. In fact, this is more than just not rejecting. This is saying, uh, yes, thank you for the flowers, darling, but where are you? Don't be fooled. Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for anything less. So, for the actual practice, now I'm going to give you some instructions. They're just variations of what we've been doing. First of all, I would recommend for this practice doing it with your eyes closed. Uh, even though I said in the beginning, if you're used to doing practice with your eyes open and you find it's easy to concentrate and you're not distracted, I would recommend personally doing all this practice with your eyes open, but that is difficult. So make it easier for yourself and try it with the eyes closed. And then here's the mechanics of the practice. And the Upanishads uh, give us a clue. By sound, we go to silence. The sound of Brahman is Om. With Om, we go to the end, the silence of Brahman. The end is immortality, union, peace. So we've been using the mantra as a device for concentration. We've been using it as an expression of our love and longing. And now we're going to use it to take us to silence. Here's the trick, though. You're using the mantra to arrive at a very deep state of absorption. And then is when you let the mantra go. So let me just read you a description from Theophane, a Christian, of this state of samadhi or absorption. The state of contemplation, is what he calls it, is a captivity of the mind and of the entire vision by a spiritual object so overpowering that all outward things are forgotten and wholly absent from consciousness. The mind and consciousness become so completely immersed in the object contemplated that it is though we no longer possess them. All attention flows into the object to the point where there is no consciousness of anything else. When you have that sort of concentrated attention, when you have literally one object in consciousness and you let that go, that takes you into consciousness without an object. Ramana Maharshi gives this description of it. When a mantra is repeated, if one watches the source from which the mantra sound is produced, the mind is absorbed in that. Where does the mantra come from? It comes from that silence. Where does it go? It goes to that silence. So, if we first focus on the mantra, so everything else is excluded from consciousness, and then we let the mantra go, the attention follows it and just gets completely absorbed in that no thing, that silence. Does everybody follow the principle of it anyway? Okay. So we're doing exactly what we've been doing up until now. We're letting the mantra carry us down into the physical heart, down through the emotional heart, you know, whatever emotions arise and pass, we liberate them, we put that energy back into the mantra, into the longing for the mantra, we let it carry it into the spiritual heart, whatever arises there, bliss or, you know, other kinds of feelings of love and all that, we say thank you, but we keep going, we keep focusing on that mantra, we keep putting all the attention, all the attention on that. And that takes us deeper, deeper, deeper into the spiritual heart. And all this other stuff starts to fall away if it's working properly. 
until we get to the point where there's nothing left but the mantra. So you just surrender that. If you're then distracted again, anywhere along the line here, just go back to doing your mantra, just the way we've always been doing. Okay? If you'd like to follow our format, stop your player now and practice until you're familiar with these instructions. Then start your player again and continue with the program. Was your experience? Yeah. So I kept having my mind have a commentary of what was going to happen when I got to that point, like walking towards the cliff and all, and thinking about well, what's going to happen when I get to the abyss. Right. And I couldn't. That's <laughs> That's right. That's that mind that has to you know tell you what's going on. Everything's going to be okay, or it's not going to be okay, or it's, you know always looking out there, and that is what we are trying to learn to ignore at the very least. And after a while, if all attention is concentrated in any object, any object, there won't be any, if you like, energy left over for thoughts. Thoughts themselves will subside. You cannot make them subside. But uh, if you withdraw the attention from everything else, it all just subsides. So just practice. But also recognizing that this thought is a distraction, this commentary. Even though it's spiritual thought, even though it's not about going to Hawaii or something, it's still a distraction. I think it's some fear. Like, yes, and yes, that's that's why that little mind pops up, you know. Now, don't worry, Mary, I'll, I'll see what's ahead. Now, let me, let me tell you what's going on here. Yeah, right, that's right. Yeah. So whether it's a thought or an image or, or something else, if you have that focus like you're talking about, that, that total focus, is it possible for other things to arise? No. Total focus, nothing else can arise. And that's the idea. You put it all on one object, and then when that object goes, there's nothing left to distract you. So the other alternative is not for you to do this through a practice, but that energy is just exhausted. There's nothing that the mind wants to think about or concentrate on anymore. It just has given up. It just has surrendered. So it wasn't a result of any practice, but the mind can't think of anything worth thinking about, let's say, which is much more of my case. So when I went to sleep that night, my mind wasn't busy with anything because it had nothing to think about. Yes, Peggy. Well, I was um, experiencing just complete spaciousness and stillness in a way, nothing, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, a bird's call popped into the middle of it. A what did? A bird's call. A bird call, yes. It just went pop. Mm -hmm. Right into the middle of it. 
<laughs> and? It shocked me. Ah. Back out of it, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh... Right. So then the practice is just to go back and try again, try again. You might have to go all the way back and start your mantra again, or you might be able to just, okay, the bird call, you allow it to go, and you come back to the practice. See what I mean? I will say this. If you're in that complete stillness and a bird call comes, the bird call could serve as the pointer back to that in which the mind gets absorbed, as Ramana Maharshi called it. See, that's it, kind of what happened. Is that the bird? And then the, the and then it, attention went right back. I knew later it was a bird call. It was just like the sound just popped. That right. In a way, pointed to this. Very good. Okay, great. So, and especially this interesting, you only knew later it was a bird call because that meant there was not even the extraneous thought saying bird call. It was just the clear, naked experience of bird call. So in that situation, anything that arises is in a certain sense a distraction. But if you don't start thinking about it and get all upset, then it'll take you right back to that absorption itself. Takes you right back. Yes. There was a place where concentrating on the mantra, feeling the, just feeling a deepening happening, and actually feeling thoughts just start to strip away. Mm-hmm. And just at that point, the mantra starts automatically on its own. Can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Won't go away. Mm-hmm. Other signs, I can't get it. Right. This time, I can't push it away. Good. That's what you want. Now I'm, I'm confused. I thought what I want was to drop it. If the mantra is going on its own, then you just keep following the mantra. The mantra will take you deeper and deeper and deeper. And at some point in that depth, either two things will happen. Either the mantra will cease. Or you will detect that you hadn't noticed before the very slightest effort that you've been making at a subconscious level, if you like, to keep it going. And once you detect that effort, you can just let it go. You just surrender it. You just totally surrender to it. And when the mantra stops, one way or another, it's going to stop. It'll take you to that silence where the mantra came from the silence out of which it arose. But it's very good that it turned into spontaneous mantra. That's one less distraction for you. Now you don't have to generate it. All you have to do is listen to it. You follow what I'm saying? Sort of, yeah. Okay. So that's exactly what happens. When it takes over in your mind, then you can relax. You can, you know, put your burden down and you can just follow the mantra and you can let the mantra just... As you described yourself, you know, start to take you deeper. Thoughts fall away. You don't have to worry about, think about it, you know. And it just all starts to strip away. So you're letting the mantra do the work. So if that's happening, don't worry about anything else. You just get on board the mantra and see where it takes you, okay? If it happens again. Okay. So, uh, as I said, at this point... The bhakti and the janana paths are converging, and the practice is identical, but I will say this, this practice is a little aggressive for at least bhaktis of the Abrahamic tradition. So while certainly the uh, bhaktis of the Abrahamic traditions know these deep states of absorption, and sometimes this is the, the launching pad for enlightenment as we heard Dionysius the Arab pagan describe, but usually I think uh, for particularly Christian mystics, uh, it's more often will happen, as I said before, that the beloved will withdraw from you rather than you trying to get beyond the beloved. And there you'll be going along, practicing away, and suddenly the beloved withdraws and leaves you stranded on the Shakti shores of love. So I'm just giving you various ways that this unfolds. It doesn't always unfold exactly the same for everybody. 
Now, people get there and, okay, there's nothing. I recognize there's nothing. So then, what's the problem? You are still there. There's nothing there. There are no objects there, but there is the experiencer of the nothing. And it doesn't necessarily feel like I because there's nothing that we normally associate with I. But there's still this final, last distinction. Ananda Moyamai describes just this predicament that we get into in this state. No matter what anyone's line of approach, at first there is torment and perplexity. One is unable to find. After that comes a state of suspense, emptiness as it were. One cannot penetrate within, neither does one derive satisfaction from worldly enjoyment. There's nothing to go back to, and yet there's no place more to go. I mean, you've arrived at nothing. There's nothing here. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to see. There's nothing to be. You can feel like, as a crude analogy, that there you are sitting in an absolutely sealed cave. So there's no sights, no sounds, no nothing. But that's the trouble. You are still sitting in the cave. Yes? How can we even report that to you? You know, if we got to a place of nothing, of no subject, no object, how, how can we remember that? I mean, how can we... <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, right now, you're in a place that I'm describing where there's no objects, but there's a subject. And so you could remember it. If you're in a true state of absolutely no subject and no object, there is nothing to report. And that's why when you wake up from dreamless sleep, you have nothing to report about it. So you're absolutely right. Yes? So you're saying that as long as you... Um, report that as emptiness, then there is an object. As long as you, well, whether you report or not, as long as yeah. you experience as as you, it. Right. You know, say, That's exactly right. Yeah. You are, in a certain sense, uh, making an object out of the nothingness. Yeah, so it's very subtle that. That's right. Uh, I'm going to give you an. I'm going to give you an analogy for this in just one minute. But this sense of just being a bare subject. This is what the author of The Cloud of Unknowing says about it. You must realize and experience for yourself that unless you lose self, you will never reach your goal. For wherever you are, in whatever you do, or however you try, that elemental sense of your own blind being will remain between you and your God. So whether there are objects present or not, it's that elemental sense of your own blind being that is still the problem there. So this is true whether the sense of self is the result of a distinction between you and an object, which is our normal experience. I look out over here and I see you as an object there. And so it seems that I'm separate or whether it's a distinction between you and no thing. And we can get a, a, uh, a crude image of this by imagining a circle drawn in space. A boundary, one boundary, one circle. That circle distinguishes the circle itself from nothing in space. So just as a representation, if you are the circle... You look out there and you don't see anything, but there's still a boundary. And you report, I don't see anything out there. Are you kind of following what I'm saying here? This is the most subtle sense of self possible. This is what I call the first distinction or the first boundary. Everything is built on this. You might actually have had some uh, experience of this naturally. When you are waking up in the morning, in the process of waking up, sometimes all you can experience is I am. 
You don't know who you are. You don't know where you are. You don't know what you are. You're in that cave. Have you ever experienced this? And then slowly the world comes back. Everything gets built up. Your complete human identity. Sometimes, at least for me, it says, okay, so now where am I? Am I waking up in Vietnam? Am I waking up in Haight-Ashbury? Am I waking up in Hollywood? Oh, no, I'm waking up in Eugene, Oregon. It's that bare, bare first distinction arising. I am. So this is the last obstacle to be overcome, the last barrier. And here's a dialogue that Rumi wrote between the lover and the beloved. The beloved said, you have done all these things, referring to spiritual practices. Okay. You have done all these things, but open your eyes wide and listen well. You have not accomplished the root of the root of love and devotion. What you have done is the branches. The lover said, tell me, what is that root? She said, to die and become non-existent. Nothing. <laughs> so, kenosis is the emptiness of object and subject. No sense of object, no sense of subject. That boundary, that distinction of the nothing to disappear for just a moment. Like I, so thing that we mystics of all traditions have spoken of this as spiritual death. And even, by the way, Jananas uh, will use that term, but it's really popular with bhaktis. And I'll just give you some examples. Menachem Nahum, the Hasidic master I've been quoting, says, who wants to draw the true life of God into him must first put to death his natural self, which has been with him since birth. Natural self here refers to that elemental sense of your own blind being. Here's Mirabai, and somebody asked earlier, uh, was it you, about what is Mirabai talking about in her poetry? And most of the time she's talking about her path and the longings and the experiences of walking her path. Here's a retrospect, a looking back. And you, you can tell by the, the tone here, because she's no longer saying, oh, Krishna, come back to me and all that. She suddenly switched tones, switched voice. She says... Do not mention the name of love to me, my simple-minded companions. Strange is the path when you offer your love. Your body is crushed at the first step. If you want to offer love, be prepared to cut off your head and sit on it. Be like a moth which circles the lamp and offers its body. Be like the deer which on hearing the horn offers its head to the hunter. Be like the fish which yields up its life when separated from the sea. So all of those of you who think going on a bhakti path is all, you know, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. <laughs> Listen to Mirabai. By the way, I don't mean to make fun of the Hare Krishna people. That is part of a bhakti path too. That's the ecstatic part. And that is certainly valid, so I'm not knocking them, but some people just have a one-sided view, that's their view of it, and it comes from that. So that's just a way of representing it. Uh, here's the Christian mystic, St. Bonaventure. Only he truly perceives who says with Job, my soul chooses hanging and my bones death. Whoever loves this death can see God. Because it is true beyond doubt that as it's said in Exodus, man will not see me and live. Let us then die and enter into the darkness. Let us impose silence upon our cares, our desires, and our imaginings. So, this is what we're going to try this afternoon. 
We just we want to see in our own experience, and I use that word you know loosely, in our own experience what these people are talking about. So now the problem is, however, how do you accomplish the root of the root, as Rumi says? And guess what? It's hard enough telling you how to get into a state of consciousness with a subject but no objects, but I don't know how to tell you how to accomplish this. I don't know how to tell you. I can tell you this. The way we're going to approach it is the same way we started going into this state of kenosis and we got all the way down. If, I mean, if you were lucky, you got all the way down to a place where there was just this sense of the elemental blind being and nothing else. And that then is what we want to identify. What is this sense of elemental blind being? Can you actually identify? So the idea is you're sitting there, to use that crude uh, image again, in the cave and nothing is happening. And you're sitting there, you know, twiddling your spiritual thumbs and nothing is happening and nothing is happening. So there is one thing you can do here. One thing you can do. You can make an inquiry. Who is sitting in this cave? Who is twiddling their spiritual thumbs? Who is very subtly waiting for something to happen? So attention continues to turn back to its source. All the way back to the true, as Dr. Wolf would have said, subjective pole of experience. I can't tell you how to do that. You just have to play with it. Okay? So, uh, we ready to go? Okay. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you're thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and practices.